Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the one-year anniversary of I Was There Too. This is the show where I talk to people who are present in the best scenes of cinema history. I'm Matt Gorley, and it's been a great year. Thank you for listening. If you have, if you're a new listener, where have you been? We've been waiting for you here in heaven. Today's episode, Field of Dreams with Dwyer Brown. Now, I have to admit, this is a film that I had not seen until preparing for this episode. Everybody has embarrassing gaps in their film-watching history, so judge not, but I'm glad I saw it. That's one thing I love about this podcast is it forces me to branch out in what I would normally watch. I I tackled a sports movie with this. I don't think I'd seen much of Clueless before I did that episode. It can't just be all 80s sci-fi and action. And I didn't even tell my guests that I hadn't seen this movie prior to doing this episode. I just did my homework and studied up and no one was none the wiser, double negative. But it did provide good fuel for an additional segment in this episode that I hope you stay tuned for after the regular interview, where I uh, talk with my great friend Mark McConville about the film Field of Dreams and seeing it for the first time. Now, it's been a whole year of doing this podcast. I was there too. What better way to celebrate a year anniversary than to take a hiatus for the rest of the year, which is what I'm doing. I need a break, but I will be back early next year, recharged and ready to go. Also, in the interim, we'll be rerunning classic episodes. They're only a year old, but classic. And I will be adding a new intro on each one to talk about my thoughts on them a year later, as if so much has changed. But the point is, stay subscribed. If you haven't heard these episodes, they'll be available to you while everything else goes behind the Howell paywall. These ones will be brought back to you with a fresh new perspective and introduction. And I would appreciate it as ever if you downloaded it. But that's it, except to say thank you so much if you've been a listener this past year. The whole podcast has exceeded my expectations, and it's been a ton of fun doing it. And this episode is no exception. In fact, this is a more earnest and sincere episode than I'm used to on this podcast. But for that reason, it was 
really welcome and a nice way to go out on what's been a great year of podcasting. So thank you, listeners. Thank you to today's guests. Thank you to Wolf Pop and Earwolf and all of the people involved. And God bless us, everyone. Let's do this. The film, Field of Dreams, the year 1989. The role, Kevin Costner's dad, John Kinsella. The actor, Dwyer Brown. Dwyer Brown, I am currently wearing the baseball mitt that was owned by your father from the 20s or the 30s that you brought into the studio today. I will post a photo of this. This is incredible. Well, yes, I had to have it. My my dad should be here for this. Now, speak to that. When when you began your shoot for Field of Dreams, a lot of things came home to you as very personal. You had just lost your father and you grew up in a farmhouse that didn't have indoor plumbing. And here you are, you walk onto set and it's uh, a farmhouse sort of reminiscent to your upbringing. Well, uh, you know, we arrived in uh, in Dubuque where the, the cast was staying, and, and it was a good half-hour drive out to the farm. And, you know, on the first day, I just I just couldn't believe how far we were driving, you know, and just getting farther and farther and farther, nothing but cornfields. And then we're on dirt roads, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is, this is out there, you know. And so, you're thinking, like, i got to do this every day? Well, yeah, I mean – it, for me, I grew up on a farm like that, so you know there was some elation in it. But I, I just have rarely shot a movie in a location that that, that was that remote, you know. So, so we were, uh, you know, we're driving out there, and when we finally turned that corner where you see the the uh, uh, farm back there, and the the field had just been built, uh, you know, like a week before I got there. So, I mean, there's the baseball field, and you know, I'd read the novel Shoeless Joe, and. I mean, it, it was just one of the most magical, tingly experiences you could have driving down that long driveway in, in the in the transpo van, you know, with the rest of the cast who had been there for for weeks and months even, and uh, and you know, it was just you know, here's this house that looks you know exactly like the house I grew up in, and and you know, porch wraparound porch, and you know, the whole deal. So, it was uh, it was really you know pretty amazing to go there and, and see that field for the first time because it's it's you know it was so incongruous at the time. Now you. It's kind of made it into our collective unconscious, but a baseball field in the middle of a cornfield was a, you know, yeah. it's what made the, the novel so appealing, I think, the absurdity of it. Yeah, and you seem to have been tailor-made for this role. And when you say you read the novel, Shoeless Joe, it doesn't mean that you read it in preparation, though, but you had read it before you had even auditioned for this film. It was something that was already on your radar, right? right. yeah. A friend of mine uh, <clears throat> was a... Uh, <clears throat> a creative writing major and he it was just a book he loved and he insisted on, on on passing it on to me and reading it which I was you know incredibly grateful for so it had been a couple of years since I'd you know first picked it up but uh yeah it, it was pretty incredible you know it's rare that you get to be a part of a movie that you know of which you're you know a huge fan of of the of the literature that it came from you know yeah and let's talk a little bit before we get into the shooting of what, how baseball factored into your life? I know you had a funny incident with your mom playing baseball. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, uh... yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, my first experience with baseball, uh, you know, my mom, who was not, you know, greatly athletic, but, you know, I was just five years old. And my, my brother and sister were just a year older than me. And, you know, she we were out trying to play baseball and she got frustrated watching us, you know, you know, stumble over ourselves. So she came out to, and, you know, set us up in the field and, and took the bat and, and I was the catcher standing behind her, you know, and I thought, oh, that's so excited. You know, mom never played, you know, outside with us. It was incredible. Well, the first pitch comes and she swings around and 
the next thing I know, I'm on the ground looking up at the sky and, you know, and uh, uh, she had swung and her backswing had come all the way around and hit me right in the in the mouth. And, uh, you know, I was bleeding. I had to have nine stitches, you know, so this is my first experience with baseball. And uh, I can't believe you would want to do anything with it. After that <laughs> in any way. Well, you know, I guess I had time at that point. You know, you're young enough and maybe it just jogged something loose and I, I forgot all about it. Who knows? Or, or yeah. Field of Dreams is your karmatic payoff that you suffered early and then you get. This yes, payoff. that's right. Right. And I, I you know, I find it, uh, you know, I think it's incredibly ironic. I also got from my freshman baseball team and and so I think it's kind of great that it's it's my photo that's in the baseball hall of fame there <laughs> and all those guys who made the team and you know they're they're all you know fat and sitting in lazy boys and I'm in the baseball hall of fame have you ever had any word from any of them or the coach oh we, uh, my my high school class was pretty close so so you know we're in touch a lot with each other and so yeah I, you know I've, we've gotten a few laughs out of it but uh, you know they they find ways to put me down anyway so that's the next best thing to win in the pennant though, that's I yeah think. that's yeah. true right yeah. yeah that's the kind of and uh, that line made it sound like I know what I'm talking about sports-wise, which isn't necessarily the case. I got lucky on that one. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the beginning of this process, the audition. I love this chapter in your book where you're preparing for the audition, and you sort of say that the less you remember about the actual audition, the better. Can you speak to that? That seemed to make a lot of sense to me for some reason. I found that I'd go in on auditions, you know, and I'd be, I'd, I'd leave the audition. I'd think, oh my God, I nailed that for sure. They're going to call me and, you know, nothing. And then I'd go in and I'd think, oh my gosh, I didn't do any of the things I had planned. I totally screwed that up and I'd end up getting the part, you know? And I, so it, it's a strange thing to sort of, you know, mistrust your own sense of trust, but that's what I sort of ended up having, having to do was, you know, if I could leave an audition feeling like I'd done a terrible job, there was a certain <laughs> sense of, oh, gosh, great. Maybe I got a chance at this one, you know. Uh, and, and I, you know, it was kind of it was a, it's a great life lesson, I think, you know, that you, you plan all you all you want. But, you know, particularly in performance and in art, there's this element of, of chaos that has to be present in order for, uh, you know, real art to be uh, achieved, I think. And at least for me, uh, it, it was an interesting thing for me to have to deal with. And, you know, there was a, a, a bit of self-flagellation and at the same time, you know, kind of pride in, in screwing things up. So. <laughs> you also write something that really resonated with me too, and that is in some ways less lines is more difficult than more lines. And I, I've never seen that more evident in your performance because you don't have a ton of lines, but you have pages and pages that you have to convey in terms of emotion and history with the characters, father and son and all of this. So how do you even go about that? This seems like it might have been the most challenging role f- proportionate to the lines that I've seen in a long time. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've, I've done a lot of small parts, and, and so uh, I, I've, I've you know, really come to appreciate that it, it's sometimes quite difficult to – I mean, I, I think a lot of actors make the mistake of, you know, they have a small part, you know, when they come in and say, you know, halt – Caesar or something, you know, that they, you know, they try to halt Caesar, you know, they try to put, you know, too much into it. But, uh, you know, for me, I, I guess I find that preparing emotionally, like for a scene like at the end of Field of Dreams, where here's a whole lifetime of, of, a, of a failed relationship between these two people. And in this magical environment, you don't know if you've got a couple sentences or if you're going to even get it to say a chance to to, you know, to actually use your words, you know, and in the scene, of course, the words are already written and most of them are, are, you know, they're, they're the text and they're not really to the point of a father and son kind of getting a chance uh, to, to, to make up or, or to, you know, kind of forgive each other or whatever, or, or even say, I love you. And, and 
if you don't have those words, how do you say, is this heaven and make it convey to them, dad or, you know, son, I'm, I'm sorry. I was, you know, so, uh, it's difficult for me. It's about sort of preparing emotionally if that situation, because my father had just died 36 days before I went to shoot this movie, you can imagine how absurd it was for me to be walking out of a cornfield, pretending to be a dead father, having a catch with their son. You know, it was, it was loaded to say the least. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I just imagined if, you know, you know, my dad really was gone and what, what would I have wanted to convey to him if I'd had, you know, five minutes, you know, wherever it was, a cornfield or otherwise? And, uh, and so a lot of times I think if you can really let yourself go, that those feelings will come out, you know, I mean, you know, with all the acting training I'd done anyway, those feelings will come out, you know, whether you want them to or not, and, and usually in a way that you can't predict, you know. But the, I can imagine the added level of difficulty because, if I'm not mistaken, you guys had to shoot this over multiple days because you're trying to get this entire scene at magic hour, and that's such a limited time of day. That's when the sun is going down or is pretty much gone, right? But you're getting yeah. this beautiful glow. But you have such a limited window every day. How many days did it take to shoot, and how was it to revamp up to that every single day and get back to that same place? Well, well, that was really the challenge of that movie, and it's it's hard to see it when you know it's very hard for people who aren't familiar with the movie business to to realize how you know how many days it takes or you know takes to to get a scene you know and, and in this case we shot probably uh, every evening for you know it was a full two weeks so uh, you know ten or eleven different days if there were too many clouds in the sky we we'd have to wow. you know you know. Uh, uh, for go shooting for that day because it didn't match, you know, what we'd already shot. But, uh, and, and, you know, that is a challenge, you know, but that's sort of, to me, what, what was one of the exciting things about being an actor is, you know, I think when a lot of people start out acting, sometimes opening night, you can do a great performance and then, you know, then you kind of lose that, you, you know, you get familiar with it and you end up, oh, I'm going to do the joke the way I did at the mm. opening night because everybody laughs so yeah. much, you know. And I think part of that challenge is, you know, just allowing it to happen fresh every night. And, uh, but you do have to get in that kind of tenuous emotional place over and over and over again. And, um, you know, and that, you know, once you know that you can do that, that's kind of fun, you know, to, to really try to create that magic night after night. And, you know, John Lindley, the, the DP would be sitting there with his light meter and be, <laughs> nope, we can't go yet. Can't go yet. Okay. Now. And then and shoot. Fast, and, and yes. And right. And then it'd be like, uh, nope, we, there's no sense to take another shot. I can't, I can't boost the, you know, the light enough to make it match. So we're done for the day and, you know, off we'd go to something else. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of a, an interesting, uh, little restriction that, that was put on that, that scene that, uh, you know, it's, you would never, hopefully you'd never know it to watch it. Actually, to hear you explain it that way now, it almost feels like it might be part luxury because you get second, third, and fourth chances <laughs> in a scene you might never get. Yeah, know? yeah, that, that's actually true. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there was, uh, yeah, there was a lot of, and, and you know, because that scene, I, we shot it in order as much as we could. You know, it, the scene itself builds. I mean, it's it's intense enough w when we first see each other, and then you know, and then there's like we're shaking hands, we're saying goodbye, and then there's the game of catch. So. Uh, yeah, it is kind of nice to sort of think, well, if I didn't quite get it yesterday, maybe I can bring it today or something. All right. Now on to the philosophical implications of this film. So oh dear. I'm fascinated by when, when you appear and when Shoeless Joe Jackson appears, everyone seems to have this look on their face of where am I? How much did you and the director or the screenwriter speak about what exactly this is or was it left vague? Was it your own interpretation? Because it's not – 
at the end, it, it seems like they're pointing towards heaven, but it's not entirely clear. It could be purgatory or something. What was the talk on set about that? Well, this question always fascinated me. In fact, when, when, I, this, when I started to write a book, I wanted to write the book that Terrence Mann wrote when he went into the corn and came back out, you know. I know. Uh, wow. Because I, I thought, well, what actually – I mean the players disappear into the cornfield, but what are they doing in there? Are they – you know, I mean I, I did a few drafts of stuff of what I imagined and it, it, it's kind of uh, – you know, it was, it was more interesting sort of not to know. I guess that's sort yeah. of the truth about life uh-huh. it, 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 as well. But um, yeah, there wasn't much talk. You know, Phil Robinson is just a brilliant guy. He's a, he's a writer who became a director – and so, um, as as a director, he wasn't awfully in, in my you know in my experience. Uh, he he didn't tell us a lot of stuff. I think partially, I think Phil and I saw that role in similar ways. So I I, I hope that he felt like I was doing what he wanted and didn't need to didn't need to discuss very much with me. So we didn't talk really about where I was coming from or where I was going. And you know, it it just sort of worked. And you know, I had. Uh, you know, I, I just try to imagine what it would be like if you could suddenly come back and, I mean, you know, just be in this place that's everything you always wanted. You know, I've, I'd, I'd always been able to imagine heaven. I, I can, I can picture people, you know, being friendly and loving towards each other, and and you know, I think the world should be like that. And I end up disappointed quite a bit, but uh, for that movie, it came in handy that I that I was able to kind of just you know, imagine a kind of a perfect place where you get to play baseball whenever you wanted and, you know, you'd be in a, you know, tranquil cornfield in the middle of nowhere. So the other thing that was interesting too is before I had even seen this film, I always thought about what it would be like to meet my dad when he was my age, as if he didn't know that we were father and son and we would just meet as friends in a bar or something like that. And what that would be like, what side of my father would I see like that? Mm -hmm. You know, did that ever occur to you? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I've thought about that many times myself, you know, particularly once your father's gone. And, you know, I, I, for the book, I was researching it and seeing pictures of him in, you know, World War II and all that stuff. And he's like, you know, that he's my age. What is he thinking about right now when, when, you know, my mom or when somebody else is taking this photo? Like, he's leaning against this. This is his first car. Does, how does he feel about that he – is this the car he loved or is this what he could afford? You know, like all those things that, you know, you go through yourself and now I have a son who's 16 and – you know, I look at him and I think, oh, God, I know what he's thinking. I know <laughs> how much he hates sitting here in the car with me right now. But, you know, I mean, it, so so it, it's it's pretty interesting that way. But, uh, you know, I, I think that's one of the appeals of the movie is I think it is kind of amazing to think, would I be friends with my father if we were the same age? I mean, would we hang out? Would we have the same sense of humor? Would we want to do the same things, you know? And, uh, you know, particularly because I just lost my dad, it was a uh, it was a fun thing to think about. Uh, and what's interesting about this uh, in the movie, you know, it, it, for those of you who remember, uh, uh, Kevin says, hey, dad, want to have a catch, the very you know, last line of the movie. And, uh, and I say I'd like that. But uh, when we shot the movie, he didn't say dad. He didn't say the word dad. And I, I sort of loved that about the script that, that like, you know, the, the magic of that field, like when you see uh, Shoeless Joe can't step out of the gravel, he somehow knows it. You know, mm-hmm. nobody told him, but he, he really, you know, they invite him to co- for coffee and he says, I don't think I can. And when Doc Graham or when, uh, you know, Moonlight Graham steps across to yeah. save the, the, you know, to save Karen, uh, you know, he, he realizes he's giving up this opportunity, you know, and, and all these things are just, you know, they're never addressed with, with dialogue or with, you know, rules or anything. But I loved playing that scene where I couldn't say 
dad or, you know, I couldn't say son and he couldn't say dad, you know, that was, that was kind of fun to play, but, uh, you know, they did audience screenings and, and a lot of the audience was, uh, you know, they thought, Oh, so cruel of, of, of Ray Kinsella not to say, not to tell him this is his dad, you know, this is like, so they ended up changing that and putting the word dad in. If, if, if those of you who watch it, you can see that they, they put it in over when the camera's on me, so you can't see it. But, um, you know, I, I, I like that, you know, kind of unexpressed uh, idea of it. And, and you know, I mean, it, it is kind of fascinating to think about, about you know, what would it be like to, you know, hang out with your dad, you know, before he was trying to tell you what to do and you were <laughs> resisting him and all that stuff. And yeah, you were just, the you pressure's know, off. Yeah. Has your son seen this and what, what does he think of this? I mean, because this is a pretty significant father-son thing and you have your history with your father and now he's part of that as your son. So... How has that played a part in your family? Well, when when I wrote the book uh, last year, we, we they had a big uh, reunion, twenty uh, fifth anniversary Father's Day thing there at the field, and um, and you know my son wasn't even born when I shot this movie. This is ancient history to them, and, and you know they kind of rolled their eyes a little bit. Oh yeah, Dad was an actor or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, you know it was kind of interesting when I went to the field. I mean there were you know five thousand people there, and they were. You know, they were very excited to I'm see sure. me. Yeah. You know, we had lines and lines of people, and and I think my son was. I mean, he really just sat back and was like, "This is not a side of my father that I'm used <laughs> to seeing." You know, and I, I mean, it was kind of cool. I mean, it was part of the reason I wanted to take him. You know, he he was. You know, he was like, "Wow, you know, that's that's kind of cool, Dad." You know, and so we did the whole weekend, and it was just crazy. I you know I played catch with a million people, and Kevin and I played catch, and Bob Costas was there, and you know Timothy Busfield, and you know. It, it was a pretty great weekend, and we were going to go off uh, in a Winnebago on my book tour, you know, with my son the next day. And, and as we were just getting ready to leave, you know, and, and get on the road, he said, hey, um, you know, would you mind going back to the field and having a catch? We sort of oh, didn't get to do God. that, you know. And, and I mean, it just like – I mean, of course, I, I – you know, we just drove right over there and – you know, he, he, he wanted to play catch with me the way everybody else had. And I don't even have a son, and I think I just had a son at that moment. <laughs> well, it, it was really, you know, kind of touching for me. And, and so, you know, he got to pitch to me, and I got to pitch to him. And, you know, we played catch, and then and then a Little League team showed up, and, and, and they all swarmed me. So I, but, but I did get my moment, you know, with my son, which I, I was just really grateful that he, you know, had the, I don't know, he, that he asked, you know, it was, it was really, it was really pretty great. That sounds wonderful. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about what it was like to work with Kevin Costner and some of the other actors. We're back with Dwyer Brown, John Kinsella in Field of Dreams. How was it working with Kevin Costner? He seems like a, a nice fella. Yeah, I, I, he was just always really nice to me. He's just, you know, he's got that star quality, you know, that you can you see immediately. He's got a great smile and he, he has this ability of making you feel like you're the only person around when you're, when you're talking to him, you know, and, and after the movie came out and, um, you know, he, he would always autograph things for me that I would, you know, give to charities and stuff. And so, you know, he was, he was just really a prince. It, it was a very interesting time in Kevin's life. Cause I mean, he was on the rise already, but Bull Durham came out while we were in Dyersville shooting Field of Dreams. And on, on top of that, uh, you know, whenever there was a break in, in the shooting, uh, he would go off to his Winnebago and, and he was writing uh, Dances with Wolves oh with God. Michael Blake, you know. So it was like this little, you know, really the middle of of this really pivotal three-movie thing he had going on, you know. Uh, I mean, he's done plenty of movies since, but it was pretty interesting to think. I mean, it, 
you know, Dances with Wolves was was a, you know, big controversy for a million reasons, you know, but it was just kind of cool that, you know, I was seeing him in this moment and knowing that he was probably going to direct that movie. And and here's Phil who was – this was his, Phil's second feature. So there was a little, I think, you know, uh, you know, both people were very aware, you know, uh, Kevin was picking up tips on, you know, having to direct, you know, Dances with Wolves and and Phil, I mean, this was just a very stressful shoot and he was not someone who was, you know, started out as a director. So I think, you know, it was a, it was a very interesting dynamic, I think. Yeah. Speaking of it being a stressful shoot, this was right in the middle of the worst drought in Iowa since the Dust Bowl. Is that right? Exactly, and there was issues yeah. with the cornfield, both too short and then too high. <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny. I, I was hired for three days for that one scene, you know, I mean, one, probably two of those would have been travel days. I mean, they were really going to shoot that in a single day. And, uh, by the time it got around to that, you know, uh, you know, the corn, uh, they had been struggling for a month and a half. They shot every scene in the movie that didn't have corn, in it, which is not many scenes, but they had to, because this the corn, corn is, is the biggest star in this film, right? Yeah. It was, it was knee high, you know, and imagine how stupid it would have looked for us players to be walking out through knee high corn, you know? So, uh, you know, and it's a drought. So, I mean, they had to get special permission to, uh, they dammed up this little creek that went through the farm and they ended up uh, watering the corn that was, that they could reach with this big sprinkler head. And, and sure enough, in that heat, it, it grew like crazy. So, you know, ironically, when they had, when they finally got around to shooting Kevin in the, in the corn in the very opening scene where he's walking through the corn and hears the voice for the first time. The corn was so tall you couldn't even see Kevin. So they had to build platforms between the corn, on, you know, with apple boxes and, and so that Kevin could be seen, you know, you know, listening for the voice and all that stuff. So, so it was kind of funny. And then, you know, all the neighboring farmers were, were livid because, you know, their, their corn is dwindling <laughs> out there. And here's this, you know, eight-foot high corn that's, uh, you know, and then, of course, the, the, the following weekend, the, the production company plows it all under and builds a baseball field. So <laughs> it was just, you know, it was – and, you know, there was, there was a good chance that we wouldn't even get the shot. I mean, if they hadn't been able to water the corn, it would, it, they would never have been able to finish the movie. And fortunately, the, the, the completion bond company recognized that, you know, they could pay for this – the permits and stuff for the irrigation or they could, you know, accept the, you know – $10 million loss on the movie altogether. So. Yeah, the corn was insured for a great amount of money, wasn't it? Right. As well? that, and then the production designer bought a bunch of fake corn stalks. Yeah, and, they, yeah, I mean, they were really looking for any possibility of stuff they could do. They had these, yeah, silk corn plants from Korea that they were going to bring 6,000 of them in and set them up somewhere in a field. And, you know, that probably would have looked ridiculous. And <laughs> fortunately, the, uh, the production, uh, the line producer was smart enough to have taken an insurance policy out on the corn. So, uh, you know, they got that, that got that covered. But, uh, I mean, you know, th those things are just so funny because you can't anticipate them. You know, these people are really thinking on their feet. You know, yeah. I, I, it's amazing. So you mentioned the voice, the if you build it, he will come voice. Um, there's a little bit of controversy as to who that is. Some people say that it might be Ed Harris because Amy Madigan was married to him and he might have been related. Some people say it's Ray Liotta. But I believe – Either way, the voice was recorded, then played back in a canyon, and then re-recorded to give it that feel. Do you have any insight on who the voice is, or are you sworn to secrecy? <laughs> well, I wish I had insight. Uh, I, you know, I, I really don't. I, I, it's not something that occurred to me, you know, even to think about who it was. But, I mean, I, I'd heard from, from Phil this uh, – I mean, Phil really is sworn to secrecy. He wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't even tell me. I, I've had, uh, you know, meals with him many a time and uh, – but, uh, you know, it's kind of cool. I, I think it's kind of cute that Phil, 
is holding that uh, yeah. secret, you know. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought that I thought that Ed Harris one was pretty good because it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like Ray Liotta. Yeah. You know, I mean, gosh, you got James Earl Jones on the set, you could have put him in there, but <laughs> you know, I think yeah, nobody would have mistaken that voice for anybody else. So. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's kind of interesting. It's a pretty hard voice to pick out of there, but uh, you know, I personally, I I I like the Ed Harris uh, story, that even theory. if it's not true. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Well, James Earl Jones. Right. I mean, th- this was a a pretty amazing cast. I mean, I'd worked with some some big names before in in, in movies and stuff, but you know, uh, you know, Burt Lancaster. I mean, that's right. that's pretty amazing. And and you know, Kevin, of course, and, and Ray Liotta, and uh, and Darth Vader. Right. And no then less. there's Darth Vader. Right. I mean, and he was the guy that of everybody, I was just kind of petrified to meet. I mean, you know, on movie sets, you're supposed to be cool. You know, you're working with these people, so you're not supposed to fawn and say, "Hey, can I get a picture with you?" And you know, so you you sort of put this up. You know, your professional actors, your 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 colleagues in this uh, endeavor. So you're not supposed to be, you know, gushing. So, uh, you know, I was trying to work out how I would say, you know, oh well, I, I I've really been a fan of your work, sir. Or, you know, Mr. Jones. And I thought, gosh, is it is it Earl Jones? Do I call him Mr. <laughs> Earl Jones? And I, I mean, I was just like, but I was just, I just wanted to be come off as like just Mr. Casual when this when the event, you know, finally would happen that I'd be in, you know, I get to introduce with him and. Uh, I ended up in the makeup trailer with him one time and, you know, for those of you who've been in a makeup trailer, it's mirrors the whole way down the side of the thing. You can't mistake – you can't miss anything that's in the room. And uh, But I'm trying to ignore him until I figure out how I'm going to, you know, introduce myself just casually. Oh, oh, oh are you James Earl Jones? I thought you looked familiar. <laughs> you know, but I'm trying to think of what to say and all of a sudden his hand is, is, is you know, right in front of me and he says, hi, I'm Jimmy. And, you know – Jimmy. I, Jimmy. So <laughs> – I just, you know, and I think he must do this everywhere because he just knew to kind of break the ice. Yeah, and get it, it must over diffuse with. it and help people out a right. little bit. And right, and he is just such a nice guy. There was no reason to have been so, uh, you know, frightened. But you know, he, he he's a formidable presence, you know, and and his voice, believe it or not, as much as we've heard it on on uh, film, it's it's even more impressive in person because you realize looking at him that it can't be coming from anywhere else. It's but, not treated. Yeah, anyway, it's not yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. so. Yeah, but he uh, it, it was a lot of fun. He's incredible in this film. He really is. Um, so you've got Burt Lancaster in there. Now, originally that was supposed to be played by Jimmy Stewart, correct? That's right. And uh, I wonder if they would have still used that excerpt from Harvey if he was in it. You know. Yeah, that probably would have been a little awkward. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think that was probably uh, Phil's nod to uh, to having you know tried to get uh, tried to get Jimmy Stewart, which I I would have been tickled uh, about, but uh, you know. Uh, I, I can tell you a few stories that I I, I was I wasn't I didn't put in the book, but uh, one of which was you know Universal they, they had a hard time getting that movie made. You know you hear that so many times with these great movies, and you think oh gosh people must have been jumping at that. But you know Field of Dreams or Shoeless Joe as it was called then was shopped around for ten years. Every studio had turned it down, and um, you know even at Universal. Uh, you know, uh, after it was finished and they were ready to do it, uh, you know, Lou, Lou Wasserman, who was still in charge there, he, he was going to take it straight to video. He, he just didn't get the movie. And 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 the truth is that, that Phil told me is that uh, Jimmy Stewart was offered the part and, and you know, it's it said that it was for health reasons, but that he really just didn't get that the the import the the magic of okay. that of that final moment you know and and so uh, you know if if it hadn't been uh, uh, Steven Spielberg intervened on on behalf of uh, of of uh, Phil to to get the movie uh, even a release 
uh, he had snuck in uh, to uh, one of the screenings. Phil didn't want uh, Spielberg to see it before it was finished, but they kind of snuck di- snuck into a uh, you know one of the final working prints uh, and you know really loved it enough to uh, convince. And of course, he carried some weight at Universal at that point. Uh, but you know, it's kind of amazing to think that a movie that's you know, a lot of people talk of as, as being a classic it was, you know, almost straight to video. And uh, Yeah, that's so. insane. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, Ray Liotta, he is such a character. His line about Ty Cobb and that laugh he ends it with, that, that yeah. face he can make, that evil face and those eyes, um, had a little deal with your lucky shirt, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ray, I mean, he's another guy. I mean, you know, at that point he'd done, uh, you know, I mean, his typical roles where, you know, he's a pretty scary guy. But for some reason, we sort of hit it off, I think, because we ended up having, uh, you know, downtime at the same time. And, you know, we were in Iowa, for God's sake. So, um, but, you know, we'd hang out a little bit together. But, I, you know, I remember when I first met him, I, I had on a, uh, a Hawaiian shirt that was – I'd gotten at uh, Aardvarks, if any of you have been in Hollywood for a long time. It was like one of the first vintage – That's right, yeah. Vintage stores. And, you know, I, you know, I'm from Ohio, so wearing a Hawaiian shirt is, a, is, a, is you know, like taking a political stand in itself. <laughs> but this was uh, – You fanatic radical. <laughs> that's right. But anyway, this shirt was pretty beat. You know, it was just – it was so old that it was fraying at the so- shoulders. You could sort of see my, my skin through the threadbare uh, fabric and uh, – you know, and I I happened to see Ray in the bar, and I was you know just making small talk with him, and you know hanging out, and uh, you know he's remarkably as weird and and you know as you would imagine as, as you see him in, in characters. But anyway, at, at some point he said uh, he said you know what's you know well, why are you wearing that stupid shirt? And I said hey, this is my lucky Hawaiian shirt. You know I'm I wore it the first day because I you know I wanted you know, to do a good job on the shoot and all that. So he reaches over and he sticks his finger through this threadbare, you know, through the fabric of my shoulder and just yanks it and tears the fabric. And I'm like, what the, what are you doing? And he said, I'm just making it more lucky. <laughs> you know, he does that stupid cackle, you know? And I was like, I mean, he, I mean, he must just love to do that to people. Cause I'm sure I was just, you know, mouth agape at wondering what, <laughs> what the hell this guy was doing. But it, you know, anytime I wore that shirt, you know, I, I obviously tried to avoid him, you know, when I was wearing that shirt, but anytime he saw it, he would reach and tear it again. He just thought that was the funniest thing. So. That fits so perfectly with my imagining of how he is. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He, there is something about him that, you know, it, it, you see it in all his characters. He looks like he likes to mess with people. <laughs> You know, so anyway, but he is actually a really funny guy. We hung up, hung out a lot, but uh, I did try to, you know, keep my shirt out of arm's length from him. <laughs> and Burt Lancaster, this is his final film. I read this wonderful story. I hope this is true, where he would order Timothy Busfield around on errands before he even realized Timothy Busfield was in the film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Tim is uh, he's just a funny, funny guy. But, you know, he would just be standing there. And, and you know, all of us were kind of like we'd stand close hoping that. You know, Burt Lancaster would turn and, you know, say hi or something. You know, you didn't want to, like, really bother him. He he was, you know, he had a reputation of being a little, you know, a little uh, grouchy uh, on the set because it was so hot and and, and, uh, and it was so far behind schedule. But, uh, you know, so you sort of hope he'd say something. And, you know, Tim, you know, he'd you know, Bert say, give me some water or something, you know, and, you know, what, what do you what say? Do you, yeah, what are you going to do? Right. So – so Busfield would get him water and, you know, he did that for several days before suddenly they were, you know, they were in a scene together and he was like, oh, you're an act, you know. So anyway, and, and you know, Busfield does a fantastic uh, Burt Lancaster imitation. So, oh, really? Yeah. And, you know, those those kind of things are, yeah. I mean, you got to do it. I mean, if uh, I would have, uh, I would have polished his shoes if he'd asked me to. <laughs> 
We're going to talk a little bit about some of your other roles, but I do want to say that this book, and I've been really enjoying it, it's called If You Build It by Dwyer Brown. And it's also, other than just stories about the film itself, there are these great interludes where you talk about run-ins you've had with people that have recognized you from this film and the significance that the film played in their lives. And some of those stories are super compelling and really amazing. The Thank one, you. In fact, I'll leave this as a teaser for people to buy your book. But the <laughs> one about the woman whose father died in Vietnam. Yeah. Is, and, and these are two, three-page little interludes between chapters that really color the book, and it's, it's quite a page-turner. So oh, thank you. Um, all right. Let's talk a little bit about – first, I want to get to the Thornbirds because I remember this miniseries when I was a kid because it was one of those appointment television events pre-cable TV. And what was the process of that like? This was a huge thing back then. Right. Well, what's interesting about that is that was the first gig I got in Hollywood. So I didn't even realize how big it was. I was so nervous. I mean, they shot that in Simi Valley, much to the chagrin of, of, of Aussie uh, uh, fans of the book. Uh, but we sat that in Simi Valley, and I was so green. I, I had never worked on a big set before. I drove out to the set the day before I was supposed to work just because I thought I, I, I got to know – like I'm a, I want to know as many things as I can. I don't want to arrive at the set, have to work, and have to know like – you know, where, I mean, is there a dressing? You know, I, I was like so green, but I, I got permission to come out there. So I, I arrive at the set a day early. And of course, nobody's really expecting me. I mean, I told somebody I was coming, but so I didn't know anybody. So suddenly I'm, I happen to arrive at lunch and I'm just standing around and they said, well, go, go, go get lunch. So I get my little tray from the, from the trailer and I suddenly think, well, I don't know anybody. Who am I going to sit with? You know, there are all these tables out there with, you know, with a shade cloth over them and all that. And there's Barbara Stanwyck, you know chatting and you know and i i don't even know where to sit i suddenly felt like that kid who just moved to a new school and doesn't know anybody and uh so i'm you know i'm just frozen petrified with my stupid tray and suddenly i hear you want to sit with me oh i know and that I, voice i turn around and here's this man in a in a priest's frock and it's richard chamberlain I was asking wondering me if that's if, where if, this was going i mean and it was just so nice because he must have seen what a panicked look i had on my face i'm trying to look cool but so he he sits me down and here I'm talking. I have lunch with Richard Chamberlain the day before I'm shooting. It just kind of, you know, just eased my way into that. You know, it, you know, it was just amazing. I, I didn't, you know, we were talking about remodeling houses because he was redoing his place in the Hollywood Hills, and I had grown up in a decrepit, <laughs> fall down place in, in in Ohio. So anyway, it was kind of a nice uh, a nice introduction, and, and and that movie was, or you know, that miniseries was just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Red Dragon. <laughs> this is a little embarrassing. I I still have not seen Red Dragon. <laughs> I, I I mean, yeah, I have I have a small part in it, but I have yet to see it. I keep telling myself I just just watch it on video for a second. So anyway, that's very funny. I really enjoy that film. You might enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I uh, yeah I I think I would. Uh, you know, what's funny is. Um, <laughs> Uh, because I, you know, I, I live out, outside of Los Angeles in, in Ojai, and I come in for auditions, and so I'm gone sometimes for half a day, driving in and out, and you know. Uh, so my my son Woody and and my daughter Lily have a theory that I have another family that I <laughs> that I that I'm gone these chunks of time. You know, I go off on shoots and stuff. They, yeah, your they, apartment in the city. Right. Yeah, they think I have a whole other family and all this stuff. So one. Of, I have one of those for eating junk food that my girlfriend that right? doesn't know about. Yeah. Well, my a friend of my son Woody's at school gave him a picture of me from Red Dragon where I'm in a family photo with all these other people. And Woody has the theory that this is my other family that, that, uh, that I've been running off to all these years. So anyway, that's, uh, that's my extent of uh, my knowledge of Red Dragon. Firefly. 
Well, I have to say, as small as Firefly is, that is probably the second most uh, 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 popular thing oh, that people yeah, stop me. Oh, yeah, the fan base for oh, that show crazy. is powerful. Right. Yeah, people come up to me and they're like, you know, I mean, you would have thought I was, you know, uh, Captain Kirk or something. Yeah. But, and those people, they, boy. and uh, That's why I asked you about this because I feel like if I don't, yeah, I will hear about yeah, it from them. Yeah, you probably will. Yeah, I, I was very happy to have had a, a small part in that movie, and uh, you know, I it, it or in the in the series when it was on, uh, and uh, you know, it it was just it was a fantastic thing to be a part of, and and it's yeah, it's just amazing to me that people remember me from from that uh, that little that little stint. The Guardian, directed by William Friedkin, how was that? Uh, it, that was also uh, pretty amazing. I mean, Bill Friedkin is a character for sure. I, 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 we could do a whole show on on that movie. Uh, I had already done a movie with Friedkin, but he didn't remember it. So when he had me in to meet with him that time, he was going on and on. I said, you know, uh, uh, Bill, I, 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 was, I was already in a movie of yours. Uh, I was in To Live and Die in L.A. And he was so embarrassed, I think, that he gave me the part in The Guardian. I mean, that's my theory. I mean, not, not that I, you know, didn't hey, deserve it. Hey, whatever it takes. Yeah, exactly. I'll take it however I can get it. That story sort of reminds me of the story of Ben Affleck working with Phil Robinson on The Sum of All Fears. And, so, and he says, you know, we've worked together before. And it turns out that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were present for the baseball scene in Field of Dreams where you and James Earl Jones go to the ball game. They were extras in the – In Fenway Park, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. That, it is kind of funny to have those, uh, yeah, those little edges on people. So, <laughs> so yeah. uh, tell us where people can find you, what you're up to now. The book is out and where people can find the book. Uh, yeah, the book's available on Amazon, and and I have it uh, on my website. It's uh, DwyerBrown dot com, and uh, we have a Facebook page and Instagram. We are, we kind of, it's been amazing since the book came out. I mean, like, I have such a small part in that movie for for twenty five years. I, you know, if people came up to me, I would say something to them. But, you know, I, I didn't feel like I had any great you know, contribution to making that movie what it was. But once I wrote the book, it was easier for me to kind of talk about it because I'm, I'm sort of talking about the book as opposed to, you know, this gigantic five-minute role I had in this movie. But uh, In your defense, though. Yes. It Def- may just be five minutes of screen time, but it's the crux of the entire movie. Everything about that movie is heading towards that moment, and that's my favorite type of role to have on this podcast at least because – there's so much weight behind that role in the movie, and right. you carry it in such a wonderful way. Well, thank you. Uh, what's funny is I didn't really even think of the role that way when we shot it. I mean, I really just thought of it as another, you know, just tying up another loose end. You know, <laughs> it's probably I, the best way to play it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm grateful for that, but I, I, I attribute, uh, you know, James Horner's score to kind of giving that movie the the momentum that it has. Because we were all at the cast and crew screening, and, and I don't think I was the only one who was like, you know, my face appeared up there, and it was. I mean, like, we had all shot the movie, and we were all in tears and and everything. So, you know, what what Phil managed to capture, and and you know, and, and Bill Kinsella, who wrote Shoeless Joe, was really extraordinary. And I sort of I think of it as beyond, you know, beyond the sum of its parts. Certainly, uh, my little part in it. But uh, but thank you for that. Uh, but yeah, it, it's. Uh, it's been it's been pretty interesting to uh you know now i've got you know ballparks all over the country have me come in and play catch with people and and it's it's kind of great you know especially in that you know one of my only regrets about that movie is that i never got to watch it with my dad you know mm-hmm. and so when i get to uh 
to kind of be there with people who've lost their father and play catch with them and, and stand in for their father and, and, and they stand in for my father. It's kind of like, it's kind of just what that movie's all about. And, and it's really, it's really heartwarming to, to have been thrust into that role, you know? And, uh, so. Thank you very much, Dwyer, for joining me. This has been fantastic. Oh, thank you, Matt. It's been great. My thanks to Dwyer Brown for that wonderful interview. That is a good one to go out on for my hiatus. And also to Sean Anderson, who is the person that connected me to Dwyer. Thank you, Sean. And as I mentioned in the intro, I had never seen this film before because sports don't get on my radar that much. But this film truly is a film that goes beyond just being a sports film. But all the same, I thought I would bring in one of my best friends of all time, Mark McConville, who's also my sports go-to guy. We do a podcast together called the Pistol Shrimps Podcast, where we do commentary on women's rec league basketball games, even though I know nothing about sports. He loves this film, and we thought maybe we'd record my thoughts going into this film, seeing it for the first time, and coming out on the other side, and having him as my guide in a new segment called... I was there... Editor's note, and before we even begin this interview, as I just edited that horrible little interstitial music piece in, it sounds like I say, I was there nude. But it's, I was there new, meaning like I'm new to this film. The point being, these music interstitials have to stop, or I'll end up nude. I'm running out of ideas, and that music just sounded like a birth control commercial music type of thing. Gotta run. Now back to the interview. Right after we hear that intro again. I was there. New. Mark McConville, this is a first and I was there too. I'm going to hand over the reins of this show to you because as we've discussed and I set up, I've never seen this film. And the reason why you're here is because we have a, a, a bit of a history where uh, I don't know anything about sports. And you do, and I often come to you as my sports guy. I'm sort of your sports conciliary. That's right. So you want to know, what, what do you need to know? You want to watch this film, Field of Dreams, but you're nervous. Well, I came to you when we decided to do another podcast that I do called Pistol Shrimps Radio saying, hey, I want to do color sports commentary on women's rec league basketball. How much do you know about basketball? Don't, I don't even know sometimes if it's called basketball. <laughs> right. And I'm... A moderate basketball fan, though I never played basketball, but I f- I'm a sports fan. So yeah, you I have a working like... sports knowledge. Yeah. And then one time for Super Ego, you came to me and said, hey, I want you to play a football coach at a press conference and answer sports-related questions. Right, because I think it's lost on you that sort of every Saturday or Sunday in the football season, coaches have to do these press conferences, and there's some real famous meltdowns. And coaches saying ridiculous stuff, and I thought I thought I would do it, but it's like I'm too good at it because I know, I know the ins and outs of the game. But you didn't know any of that stuff, so it was brilliant. To sort of ask you specific sports questions, and you have no idea what I'm talking about or anybody's talking about, and you just have to answer them with random stuff, and it works really well. And when someone was nice enough to send me an email and say, "Hey, there's this guy from Field Dreams, I can give him to you." And I, I said, I certainly understand that Field of Dreams was a huge movie in especially sports cinema history, but cinema history in general. And so I immediately wrote you an email and I said, what do you think about this? And I said, do it. Watch that movie. Get this, get this guest. That would be good. And now, so here we are. Here we are. So are you, 
What's your trepidation about this film? Oh, I have no trepidation about it. In fact, I know that my mom... There's my cat. Uh, hey, Margo. My mom loves this movie. I know you love this movie. I have no trepidation about it. My only trepidation is is I just haven't seen it. So I feel sometimes, because this happened before with Bring It On, and I don't think I'd seen all of Clueless, I feel a little... Um, like an imposter interviewing someone about a film that I'm just watching for the first time. Understood, yeah. Yeah. Because usually I do these on films that I'm super knowledgeable about that I have a personal history with. Right. And so I feel like I've got to branch out to do sports films. I've got to do films that are in genres that I wouldn't necessarily watch. And so here we are, and I'm glad to do it, but I thought we'd document the fact that I'm going into this thing, Field of Dreams Blind. Here's yeah. the things I know about it. Okay, tell me what you know about it. If you build it, they will come. And I believe that's a bunch of people without feet. <laughs> okay. Footless Joe. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Shoeless Joe. Shoeless Joe and he's is, a, is a character. Played in by Ray Liotta. Correct. I know who my guest, Dwyer Brown, is simply because of the email exchange. Right. And I'm excited about that. But I think... I, I think you... Y- you might still be surprised by really his role in the film. Here's I really I, think this film is fantastic, and I think it it isn't really a baseball movie. I mean, it is a baseball movie, but it'd be I I I when we watch it right now, I might actually clock the time that there's baseball. Okay, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great idea because I don't I don't really can I mean it is a baseball movie for sure but there's also other elements of it and you spend a lot of time not, not I, playing baseball or watching people play baseball uh, but I'm very curious to like watch you watch this movie. Interesting. Okay, so here's what I think it's about. Mhm. Kevin Costner is a dairy farmer. Amy Madigan is she in this? Yes. She's a milkmaid. Okay. James Earl Jones is her dad. Uh-huh. And then the ladies from the League of Their Own come onto the field. They have a barn dance, first of all, without a barn. And then they all go get real frosty in the corn pond. Let's go watch this sucker. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Here we go. I was there new. So I put a little break in here just to show the passage of time, but also so that you could two more times hear the theme too. I was there new. All right, Matt. We've just finished watching Field of Dreams, and I'm wiping the tears out of my eyes. You you did say that you would cry. Yeah, when we sat down to watch the movie, I said this I did a guaranteed cry. And did you? Yeah. It is a really touching ending. It really is. Yeah. And it I, I guess it's been a really long time since I've seen this movie. And I think the first time i saw it without knowing who your guest is in uh-huh. the film there's just i felt like i got blindsided by it you didn't you had no idea he was the coming? first time i saw oh, it i guess that's interesting because from my watching i know this is happening because i know that this has been explained to me <laughs> but i'm saying if you didn't know yeah that the last person he'd meet was his own dad Right. They, yeah, they don't but necessarily some... telegraph it. They don't. Oh, I thought. I mean, knowing how it ends and watching it again now, I mean, it's probably been ten years since I've seen it. He talks about his father a lot. Oh, maybe yeah. Almost to everybody that he meets throughout the film. 
So it shouldn't be a surprise, but like for some reason, the first time that I saw it, it it blew my mind that it's, his dad would show up. I mean, it opens with that montage, uh, like all the stills of his dad, you know, playing ball and giving up, and them having having an acrimonious relationship. Yeah, like that's all throughout the movie, and I don't remember it that way, but it's still really, really powerful. Yeah, I have. A fair amount of memories of my mom watching this film, so I've seen bits and pieces of it, and now I know that I remember seeing the ending. But anything that is a father-son sort of thing sort of tugs at your heartstrings. And I remember recently watching About Time, which, to my knowledge, was just a straight-up romantic comedy popcorn movie. And my girlfriend Amanda says, no, you should check this out. And we watch it. And you don't hear that much about this film. Mm Mm-hmm. And at the end of the movie, I was sitting on the couch and she was sitting on the floor and she turned around and I was just sobbing. It's, <laughs> it's a father-son story. It throws you a curveball. Yeah, there. and it's like very um, sentimental, but not not in a super like, I don't know, like it it just does that so well that it's almost like you don't hate it for it. You kind of want it. And I, I feel like... I enjoyed those parts of this film and the James Earl Jones storyline was so good. Yeah. I mean, it really is. I clocked, I, I tried to time how much baseball there really is. <laughs> and it's, a, it's, a, it's like 10 or 11 minutes. It's not that much. And it's almost always in the background, right? Like James Earl Jones is giving that monologue about people will come and they'll drive yeah. and they're just hanging out in the background. And the whole foreclosure thing that's going on with Timothy Busfeld, it's like, they're just playing baseball in the background. Yeah, you know? that's that's just getting at the larger theme, which is interesting because in my research, the um, original script was called Shoeless Joe or Shoeless Joe Jackson, and they're making the film, and the studio stepped in and said, no, that's too sports-related. It's not testing well. We want to call it Field of Dreams. And the director was like, oh, okay. So he goes back to uh, the author and the author goes, oh, Shoeless Joe is just a name my publisher forced on it. It's called Dreamfield. That's what it was originally called. Oh, how funny. Yeah. I and made then, all that up just now. Did you? No, <laughs> just kidding. No, it's true, apparently. <laughs> this has been another segment called I Was There Shoeless Joe Jackson. <laughs> uh, but I I really enjoyed it. I, I'm glad I got to watch it with you because yeah. I know it's a special movie for you. Yeah, that that, that it, makes movie watching better. It yeah. certainly had some like I mean, I watched it as a kid a lot and maybe you didn't understand it the way that you do as an adult. Yeah. So it was cool to watch it again. Have you ever done this? Because I've done this before, thought about what it would be like to meet my father when he's my same age. So I I now have known my father when he was my current age. But I I when I was like twenty wondered like what if I was able to just walk up to my 20-year-old father in a bar and he wouldn't know it but I would know it and just talk to him because he wouldn't treat me like a son he would treat me like any contemporary and so he would be a different person that I'm not used to seeing and how how interesting that would be I can't imagine it I really can't I mean be I don't I have no idea That'd well, well amazing. take a picture you've seen of your father at that time and anybody listening or your mother or whatever take a picture of them at your age and then try to imagine them without their parent mask on, like just their like weird 
carefree, friendly, like they're hanging out with one of their buddies. Yeah. Some people can fathom that and some people can't. I I think, because I always knew my dad when I was a younger person as very serious. Now I know him as very chill and fun-loving. Right. And I think he would be more like that. I guess you'll have to build a baseball field. I already did. Let's Great. head outside. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. You're welcome. Love you. Love you. <laughs> Thank you, Mark McConville, and thank you, me, for that interstitial music. Just let me know if you'd like to download it for a ringtone or any of the other I Was There Too interstitial music pieces that are probably dancing around in your head interminably. So this is the end of I Was There Too for just a little while. I'll be back early next year. Thank you so much for listening. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Gorley, Instagram, also on Letterboxd, where when I ramp up this show again, you will see the interviews that are coming down the road. Thank you to Wolf Pop for having me do this show, and Jeff Ulrich once again for getting it started. You can reach me at IWasThere2Pod at gmail.com. If you can connect me to a guest for an episode next year, that would be wonderful. Now, let's go out on a sampling from one of my other podcasts, Super Ego, that was mentioned in this discussion with Mark where I play football coach Brian Helzebeck stymied at a press conference because I'm improvising and know nothing about sports. Have a great holiday, everybody. And for God's sake, stay subscribed. This isn't goodbye. It's just daddy needs to take a little nap. Sports Week Daily. I'm Larry Tedlock. We now take you live to the press conference of Coach Brian Helzebeck of the Utah Pirouettes. Okay. All right. Christ, Hammer, look at you people just sitting there, standing. Now I'm going to make this quick because the Faberhard pencil people got an ad campaign they want to run past you. And I, for one, am real excited to see that because I don't know about you, but using a Bic pen doesn't give me the dick, friend, that a Faberhard does. First question. Coach Elspeth, Coach Elspeth, uh, Steve Coach and then uh, Ambrose. Coach, can you substantiate the rumors that you're going to the mainstream media and you're going to be an analyst for Real Sports Daily? Look, I don't know where you get your news, but the great president and philosopher James K. Polk once said, I am the president after John Tyler. Coach Elspeth, Coach Elspeth, yeah, Carl, from the Quaker Oats Circular. Coach, you finished out your season here, 2-12. and 12. Pretty pathetic from a world champion coach. Are you a dinosaur? Are you a dinosaur? Because your magazine is a stupid kindergarten writing where a bunch of kids with lobster hands get up and try to hold a crayon, but they can't, and then they just get weirder looking because they've got that silver crayon melting on it, and they're like robot gonzor people. Now, next question, but this time not from telescope-eyed-looking people. Ricardo Mountbatten of the Cincinnati Mountbattens. Hey, Coach, I was wondering, does this have anything to do with the fact that you haven't been coaching? Hold on, I swallowed a carpet fiber. There, I got it. My wife just recently got in an accident, total relationship with my brother. So, I'd like to say a prayer, if you'd all bow your heads. Dear the Christ... We were friends once, and you really dicked me over something real good. But that's all, okay? Amen. Ranch cough blood. I understand that you've had a series of health problems. Hey, Neon the Garden Dwarf, go bake a loaf of your own problems. Yes, Clark, and then um, Clark again, please. Well, Coach, I 
think we're all wanting to ask you about your gambling. It's going pretty well. Next question. Clark again. Can you substantiate the rumors that this firing is directly related to your gambling problem? I have been a gambler. And commensurate to that, I have been fired. But there is no connection insofar as there is. I've had problems with roulette. Blackjack, Cambodian sip water. And those are the ones I can handle because I have a system. If I had a dime for every time one of you tin dicks put on marzipan wetsuits and went swimmy dipping in the European ice chalice, then you might as well be playing American rules football on a mirror-bottomed boat. It's clear. But I'll tell you what, the real problem here is ivory poachers. And I've got shin bones that have had more sex than you people. And forgive me if I get all amped up right now, but sometimes you got to smash a bottle in a bar to cut some bleed. So listen to me. I've got one last point, and I want to make it right now in the form of a word sentence. Some of you might have read in the papers yesterday that my firstborn son was born yesterday healthy as a horse and looking a lot like his old man. My brother. I named him Coach Junior after Craig T. Nelson. Now look, everybody stick around. We've got a real good show coming up for you. Train, going to perform Meet Virginia, which is a great song if you are a 38-year-old woman in a Tennessee dive bar. And after that, we got that onion-faced kid from the low country. Good night. Pop. Pop? Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear. I was there new. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.